Well, it's quarterly slide deck time uh, once again here at Melman Castagnetti, Rosen and Thomas. And that means we're joined once again by firm founders, Bruce Melman and David Castagnetti. Guys, welcome. Thank you, Dave. How are you doing today? Doing really well. I have enjoyed, Bruce, uh, once again, your uh, your quarterly slide deck and analysis. This one's titled The Great Acceleration. So I'll start with the obvious question. What's accelerating and why? Well, Dean, uh, we took a look at what is not a normal world. When you think of the year 2020, you know, you've not only do you have a recession, not only is there a global pandemic, not only are there mass protests, you have an intense election too. And it's pretty hard to find any year in American history with that much going on. So for a lot of folks, there's been a question about whether that's going to transform the world, society, the country. And as we thought about it, our conclusion is that 2020 is going to prove to be far more accelerative than transformational. And that some trends that we've been watching that have been shaping our politics and policy across technology, globalization, culture, and politics for the last several decades, not only remain the central macro trends, but what we might have seen over 10 or 15 years may now happen in two to five. You know, Bruce, one of the one of the running themes, I think, in your quarterly analyses is this loss of trust in institutions. And uh, you reference that again this quarter. I'm curious what you see in that regard, because I, we, we all sense it, uh, whether it's politicians, churches, business, there, there's that loss of trust. Is there something about periods of change and innovation that necessitate loss of trust? Is it just out with the old, in with the new? It's the confluence of a lot of things at the same time, Dean. At its core, what you find is around the world, citizens don't feel protected. They're being buffeted by all of these changes, new technologies, new ways governments interrelate with each other, profound demographic change across their countries and across their regions. Uh, And they worry about their ability to provide for their families and to succeed in a very new environment. And when you take a look at what's going on, we have policies that were created uh, in the 20th century for a reality of a Cold War, a reality of uh, a manufacturing economy. And we're now in a post-Cold War rise of China, uh, fourth industrial revolution world. And just so many people on the left and on the right feel uncovered, unprotected. And when they think, well, who's got their back, they no longer have confidence Uh, that the traditional institutions do. The other piece of it all is thanks to the internet, there is a new radical transparency. And so we now can see all of the ugliness under the hood, whether it's uh, within the media or whether it's within uh, Hollywood or so many other things that were, you know, the, the, the church institutions that once upon a time we all revered We revered in part because we didn't know all the facts. And when you find out all the facts about anybody, me, Castagnetti, probably even you, Dean, uh, we're not as uh, we're not as pretty as uh, as we'd like to package ourselves. I think, Dean, just to pick up on that, I I, I agree with Bruce and we're clearly in a a rapid acceleration change, as as Bruce pointed out. Back on the institutions, though, I I would even go a, a, a step further, especially as we look at domestically. And if you read uh, E.J. Dion's new book, it really kind of stems a lot from the Reagan revolution where big government was bad. And now we've moved on to big institutions of bad. And to Bruce's point on trust, 
right? It, it's not only the trust of the institutions, but there's a great deal of income inequality that's existed in our country over the last 25 years, and not just in our country, but worldwide as, as you look at it. So people don't believe that institutions are there to help them. They see them as part of the problem and not necessarily as part of the solution. Well, David, one of the one of the most prominent changes and maybe loss of trust plays into it, but it's and Bruce references this uh, also, but is is the realignment of the parties, whether it's whether it's college education, gender, race, geography, particularly on the Democratic side. And, and as we go into this election season, what, what are you seeing in terms of party realignment? Yeah, that's a really good question, Dean, and, and clearly we focused on, on this a lot. I think that the interesting thing to me, though, as much as we talk about party realignment, let's talk about the facts. Joe Biden won the Democratic primary, not exactly the changing demographic of the Democratic Party, but on the other side, still appealing to a majority of Democratic voters. And that's really important uh, from a governing perspective. But I think your, your concept of where we're going, just to, to put in perspective, is by 2045, a majority of our country will be minority and a majority of our voters will be minority. Right. So you're seeing that change take place. Also, your point on geography is really well taken. And looking at Dave Wasserman's uh, description of it, which I think is the best one I've seen. You know, if you live near a Whole Foods, you're a Democrat. If you live near a Cracker Barrel, you're probably a Republican. I mean, that really just kind of sums up where we are. And, and the last point I, I would raise on the changing demographics, again, just look at the House Democratic Caucus, where less than 40 percent of the House Democratic Caucus is white men. Uh, versus the Republican conference, which is about 90% white men. You're seeing that split in the party, and the parties are trying to figure out who they are and where they want to go moving forward. Yeah, you know, I might uh, I might tack on to that all, uh, th- that I agree with everything David just said. It, it feels to me that there is a realignment, and, and to oversimplify it, it feels like the Democratic Party used to be a class war party where they had the kind of the working class, they had the union guys, uh, and there were the fights were often. I mean, look at Clinton's '96 platform, very hostile to immigration, super tough on crime. Uh, it feels like the parties have pretty fully realigned in the age of Trump on culture wars. And so, if you want to know who's where, I mean, the Dems are now more pro-trade, which is which is not where people were two, three decades ago. Uh, the Dems are definitely more pro-immigration. It's you have the college-educated, particularly suburban moms, are increasingly the Democratic Party. You know, they've swung and they seem gonna stay swung uh, unless the Dems nominate somebody who can uh, who goes so left that uh, that they lose the center. Uh, one thing, Dean, if I can also just go back on, uh, we were talking about why things are accelerating and why there's loss of trust in institutions, and you cannot underestimate the power of the iPhone. The iPhone combined with smart media, in my mind, history will prove as transformational as the Gutenberg printing press. 
everybody can now witness what's going on, take a video, take a photo, or post whatever they feel like saying. Everybody can now publish it, and it can get to millions of people, billions of people around the world. That's led to a level of hyperactivism on the left, on the right, um, and institutions were always built to bring folks together, but to have kind of a, a an elite leadership try to find a common ground across a lot of organizations. Think about a political party. You could have liberal Republicans in the Northeast, and you could have conservative Republicans in the South. And the RNC's job was to find as much common ground as they can. As a result of social media and and the uh, smartphones, everything's atomized. Why be part of the Republican Party, which is uh, you know which is, is heterogeneous? When you can you can uh, have a single issue group. You can belong, you know you care about guns. Belong to the NRA. They've got one issue. They don't even try to compromise. And you can belong to a lot of these things every now and then, as opposed to uh, a few things that brought everybody together. And institutions, whether they're political parties, whether they're in, uh, multilateral institutions, whether they're national governments, are struggling in the age of the iPhone and, and, and social media to bring groups together on compromised positions when social media and everybody's hyperactivism allows them to be uh, very engaged on narrow, specific issues where, by definition, a group position is going to disappoint people. That's a really good point, Bruce. I, I, what I would pick up too, it not only uh, does it, it, it brings issues to the forefront, right? As we look at the unfortunate situation with Mr. Floyd, you know, we're now dealing with the race question because of the iPhone and it was captured. That's a, you know, th- these are discussions that we continually need to have as a country and, a, and an important service that social media is playing in our country, I believe. Although we also should collectively acknowledge the the risk in in uh, without the gatekeepers, without the institutions to try to find common ground and bring us together in a world where everybody can publish what they want when they want. It's also leading to the extremes. The loudest voices on Twitter are the extreme left and the extreme right. And so whether it's cancel culture or, or the president's approach to tweeting, where if you're a Republican, and you don't say he's the greatest president, you're at risk. Um, ask Jeff Flake uh, and ask uh, a variety of other folks. That's that is the founders built a system predicated on compromise. At the end of the day, if you want to get things done in the United States of America, you need to bring the coalition together. It's very hard to find that kind of New Deal, great society, arguably Reagan revolution group that's so big that you alone can can get things done. Uh, normally, what you've got to do is you've got to find common ground. The social media, which is amazing at bringing uh, voices that haven't been heard to the fore, also has a lot of bullying on the left and on the right um, that's, that's making it a lot harder for voices that say interesting but different things to get heard and to be accepted. Go try to work for The New York Times if you're not down with the program. Yeah. No, again, uh, valid point on, on the other side, though, Bruce, is Hopefully, at some point, we do start to come together as a nation again. And I think that's clearly one of the things that Joe Biden is talking about in his uh, run for the presidency, that it's it's a time for healing and bringing folks together a little bit. And you're, you're right. The referee is gone. We probably need Walter Cronkite uh, back on TV again to kind of help inform us uh, versus all these uh, medium that now affirm our positions. 
agree. You may want Walter Cronkite, David, but you're getting Tucker Carlson. (laughs) You, uh, Castro, you you, you brought it back uh, to to Vice President Biden and and the presidential campaign. And and this is all a fascinating way to think about the future and really the, the, the not far distant present of how we're dealing with all of this. But this is the election season. There's a presidential uh, election coming up just in months. It looks like Vice President Biden has started to roll out his policy platform, which elicited a, uh, an accusation of plagiarism from the president. He uh, sounds like Vice President Biden is trying to uh, steal his populist credentials. Just in terms of what we're seeing in the rollout from the Biden campaign, what, what does that policy look like? Yeah, I, a good question, Dean. I, I, to me, as I think about what the vice president's done, is he's trying to provide a vision of how he will lead our country, and that's both domestically and internationally, right? So part of it is, I think his major concern is how does he help working families, and how how do we address the income inequality question? How do we deal with climate, and do we start to look at uh, zero emissions policies uh, by 2035, right? A, a, a loud goal. Or how do we create jobs in the United States and realign our supply chains, right? As we looked at PPP, I'm sorry, PPE questions that arose uh, during uh, the pandemic we're living in, China was making everything. You know, how do we bring drug manufacturing back to the country or just medical supplies? back to the country. Those are the challenges that the vice president's trying to address in his run. And at the same time, as we were talking about before, is how does he unify the Democratic Party, right? The the vice president himself has been kind of a moderate record through uh, his career. He obviously has some issues that he has to work with on on the left, whether it's social justice issues or income inequality issues, the Green New Deal, that's the challenge that he has to overcome and, and motivate the Democratic base. Remember, as, as we've mentioned in the past, winning elections is all about turning out your base. And that is the challenge that the vice president has as he continues to expand the, the field or the states. Uh, that matter at the end of the day. Bruce, can can Biden ride this election out in his basement where this strategy of being heard but not seen seems to be paying off for him? The idea of Joe Biden is a lot more powerful than the reality of Joe Biden. For all uh, of his uh, decency as a human being and 44 years of service to the nation, it's his third time running for president. And he has, to put it, I think, not unkindly, gaff prone. He's he's his history has been to say things that he's had to kind of explain or walk back. So, hey, Bruce, the, the only thing I'd say on that is maybe people don't want Rocky Road ice cream, but they want vanilla ice cream again. Yeah, no, I, I agree, but they don't want it to fall on their shoe. And so I, I think uh, so far the Biden folks have handled this brilliantly. I mean, the key is to not make it about Joe Biden, to keep it about the president. Within our new analysis, we, we in looking at the race, uh, we suggest that it comes down to a battle of the brand. And for Biden, you know, here are the five brands that he wants to uh, keep and avoid. He wants to remain Uncle Joe, kind of everybody's favorite uncle and not Grandpa Joe, where he's seen as too old. 
He wants to be regular Joe, a kind of blue collar common guy and not radical or woke Joe, where he's seen as too politically correct for moderates. He wants to be Obama era Joe that we all know, as opposed to Clinton era Joe, where he's seen for too moderate for the liberals. And look, he was a pretty moderate conservative Dem back when that was the flavor of the month. Uh, he wants to be patriotic Joe, uh, father of a uh, of 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 a uh, of a soldier, and not partisan Joe, where he's seen as rooting against the recovery. He of course has to worry about what we call no show for Joe, which is the fear of disease, lack of enthusiasm. Uh, for him, the the very real risk of voting restrictions, whether pure partisan or health, depressing turnout. For Trump, there are brand risks, too. First, he's got to avoid being seen as the disruptor in chief. You know, everybody wanted to disrupt, but that was back in peace and prosperity. And there's a lot of folks who just want stability now. And uh, and some of the tweets and some of the NASCAR things and others make people feel like, good Lord, dude, there's a recession. There's a pandemic. Just chill out. He's got to avoid being the divider in chief where he's seen as inflaming divisions or even race baiting. Avoid being the pandemic president who's failed to manage COVID. Compare the United States to Europe, which is reopening, or South Korea, where there were uh, fewer cases in all of South Korea than in Florida yesterday. He's got to avoid the locker up, which was making he made it a choice against Hillary Clinton. Well, he was a better choice to throw him out where it's a referendum on Trump and not a choice against a less attractive brand. And then last, the vision thing, you know, why, why get reelected? The first time he was asked that question, which is a softball underhand pitch uh, by Sean Hannity, he didn't have an answer. I mean, he, he kind of wandered. He, he's obviously, the team put together a, a sharper answer. And when he got asked it a second time, he did a nicer job. But Folks have to feel like he's got a plan and, and, and you know, build a wall and have Mexico pay for it work the first time. But you kind of need a different plan for the uh, for the reelect. At least all the presidents that I've seen get reelected had a forward looking agenda that they were talking about. I think on that, Dean, if, if I may pick up a little bit, just as a campaign matter as well as Bruce laid out the brands and the and I was as I was discussing before the vice president with his vision, you know, just the way the race has to be run is probably to uh, Vice President Biden's advantage. It's more of a controlled environment. The president is not able to do as large rallies. Look at the issues that the Republicans are having in terms of how to handle their convention and where to have their convention, where the Democrats have adjusted to that and have focused very much on, here's the new vision, here's the new way we're going to run for office and controlling that message is incredibly important. So for all of the disruption, the elections, uh, everything we've run through, and, and Bruce, the, the the crux of your analysis really comes down to, if if I'm running a GR shop uh, in DC, if I'm in a, and communicating to a C-suite, if I'm sitting in a C-suite uh, of, of a major corporation, what should I be doing right now to be prepared for what's happening and what's coming? So we offer five recommendations at the end. First is to recognize the importance of trust to your brand. Uh, if, if we're in a world of hyperactivism, if stakeholders all have phones and are boycotting and demanding change, uh, you can't put your head in the sand. People are going to judge you on what you did to help a lot of the challenges in our country in 2020. And merely saying, well, we always pay our dividend, so let's lay off a lot of workers to have the cash for the dividend, 
could be a short-term Wall Street appreciates you this week and a very bad long-term, you're not seen as a constructive player. So trust is one. Two, be awake to technology. It is transforming the world and that will only accelerate. Uh, and if you're not figuring out ways to, to change your business based upon technology, technological possibilities, uh, you should assume you're going to be out of business. Three, the ongoing deglobalization led by U.S.-China decoupling is making geopolitics much harder. Uh, we urge businesses to, to you know, you've got to put a lot more time and attention into thinking and scenario planning. But at the same time, if businesses aren't uh, going to be the, uh, the, the leaders in multilateralism, then who will? Fourth, we've seen power already moving from Washington to states to sometimes to mayors, to foreign countries. Uh, and if your game plan is, well, we'll just lobby Congress and they'll protect us. They didn't protect from AB5, which is a uh, could kill the entire gig economy, really bad law out of California, or from privacy regulation in California or in, G or in the EU. Um, last, uh, politics are messy, but we're coming upon an era of reform. As we talked about, the reason for institutional mistrust is because the rules of the 20th century don't apply very well to the realities of the 21st. It's too much inequality. Too many people aren't dealt in. Change is too fast for others who aren't prepared for it. Um, that in the Gilded Age, that across the Great Depression, it leads to meaningful reforms. Uh, reforms should be, if you engage with policymakers, you can help steal reforms to win-win productive outcomes. If you just resist them all and say any proposal to change anything, you know, is either socialism or fascism, uh, you're going to find your business model possibly uh, outlawed and your license to operate removed. So you got to engage. Can I can I uh, add a, a little more to Bruce's point? I, I agree, obviously agree with him wholeheartedly on this. The, the other thing I, I would say to folks who run Washington offices is pay attention to the cultural and generational changes and not just the policy, right? You have a, a, a situation where you need to keep your employees or recruit employees. You have, as Bruce mentioned, brand issues that your company has to deal with in dealing with customers. And, and it's, it's, it's beyond kind of internal uh, Washington, D.C. public policy fights, but the macro cultural fights that we talk about through the, through the deck as well. And, I would focus on the cultural and business changes that are taking place, too. Guys, it's an enormous amount of information provided here. But, Bruce, as you said, there's a lot going on. So I really appreciate you walking through with this, this with me today. And thanks for being on 14th and G. Thank, Thank you, Dean. Dean.